I'd like to start this episode and this series with my conversion experience. Or maybe better put, my most recent conversion experience. One that I'm still in the midst of. Now, it's probably not what you think. See, I've, I've led worship for quite a while. And at a certain point, I was leading worship for a lot of relatively big youth services. One night, I found myself leading for a stereotypical evangelical youth event. Something like a thousand high school-age students. They were all super excited to be there, and they were singing their hearts out. Let me pause for a moment and say, I love that music can supersede logic and appeal to some other aspect of our beings. I love that it can be an alternative mode of communication. But at that particular point in my life, I had grown very uncomfortable with the fact that some of the music I was playing was sort of becoming the glue to whatever idea had just been shared before the song. For example, God is very mad at you. Plus, a very emotional song could equal a lifetime of insecurities. I just hadn't worked out what to do with it yet. Anyway, back to this particular night. The guest speaker was working through your standard Obama is the Antichrist slash did you know they're now injecting people with trackers, aka Mark of the Beast, slash you've let God down sort of stuff. Now, someone had come to me to let me know the altar call was about to start because I had gone to the lobby to avoid anxiously pacing in the other room. I really don't know how many of you have been a part of these sort of services, but basically what happens next is I would start a song and I'd watch the speaker carefully. At certain points, the speaker would want to come back and reiterate their final point. Now, I honestly don't remember what the particular language was that night, but I'm sure it was something like, you are not okay with God but you can walk down here and get okay with God. Now this rotation between music and speaking happened several times because no one really comes the first time, but with each pause, it becomes harder and harder to resist a pull. Now that rhythm is pretty standard, but something particular happened that evening that has stuck with me ever since. As I was playing, I looked down and saw a young girl who I would estimate to have been about 14 years old. And she was weeping, and I mean the sort of crying that involves all the muscles in your body. Eventually, this big awkward guy, who I'd say was about 17, came to comfort her. He wrapped her in his arms, and she cried on him while he blankly stared in my direction. Let me be clear, because this story sort of sounds ominous. I didn't have a concern that this was any sort of predatory situation or that it would lead to a harmful situation for her. But I was certainly bothered by the image of a young girl sobbing into the chest of a straight-faced young man. In that moment, this question occurred to me. What could this young woman have possibly done to be made to feel this much shame, especially in the context of worship? The answer is, of course, nothing. And in that moment, I was converted. Because I realized that the economy of many churches is not love, it's not mercy, 
It's not grace. It's shame. Why? Because in a capitalist society, the fundamental question of customer retention isn't do they love this product? It is, do they need this product? And the best way to establish need is to show people's deficiencies without having said product. And so, the marketing strategy of much of the church has become, you are bad. You need Jesus. Unfortunately for you, we have him locked in our church sanctuary. I'm Anthony Mako. Welcome to Postmodern Living. Postmodern liturgy exists in a couple different forms. This podcast is a chance to reflect on the weekly readings in the liturgical calendar, the week before they actually occur. So this podcast comes out on Mondays and uses the readings for the following Sunday. Our distinctive is that we try to apply a variety of postmodern lenses to the text, especially offering space for deconstruction and doubt. I also write and record all the music specifically for this podcast. You can engage in more material at postmodernliturgy.com. You can follow us on social media at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. And if you're so inclined, you can join our wonderful group of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy. We're entering the season of Lent. It's a time of preparation for Holy Week and Easter. Yes, Christians have a whole lot of seasons of preparation. Generally speaking, it is 40 days of fasting of some sort, with the purpose of being renewed in one's relationship to the divine. Many denominations celebrate differently. Some count Sundays and some don't. So when I said 40 days, I mean starting this Wednesday on Ash Wednesday, leading to Easter, not counting Sundays. It's probably most notorious for people giving something up during this season. Ash Wednesday is the beginning of Lent. 
It's meant to be a bit of a reset. We're, we're reminded that from dust we came and to dust we return. In the worst way, it sort of reminds us of our insignificance. But in the best way, we're reminded of the circle of life. We're reminded of our connectedness to all of creation around us. And we are reminded that without the divine breath of creator, we would be nothing. And so we begin this season by renewing in each of these areas. More specifically, during this season on Postmodern Liturgy, I'd like to explore one main question related to the story I told at the beginning of this episode. And that question is, is it possible to go through a season of confession and repentance without shame? And furthermore, if shame is removed, then what is the function of confession and repentance? In other words, can we do it without needing to feel completely worthless first? Well, we can. But before we start deconstructing shame's relationship to Christianity, let's turn to the readings this week. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Yahweh took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, to till it and keep it. And Yahweh commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that Yahweh had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Psalm 32. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom Yahweh imputes no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silence, my body wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up, as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle, else it will not stay near you. Many are the torments of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in Yahweh. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned, sin was indeed in the world before the law. But sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. 
And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted forty days and forty nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only God. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him.
I'd like to start this reflection by examining each passage. Interestingly enough, this week happens to contain several of the scriptures which trigger shame. You see, you may have heard it said that Adam and Eve sinned, and so you are helpless. You are depraved or bad. It is simply impossible for you to be good. But I tell you, the passage in Genesis shows the humans electing to move back into chaos by stepping into the position that the Creator once held. You see, this mistake that takes place is located in the idea of wisdom, which is actually one of Scripture's greatest virtues. This isn't a seed of badness growing in the archetypes for humanity. It's a matter of competing sources of wisdom. Everything the serpent says is technically true, which makes this decision not a question of ultimate morality, but rather of relatedness and rootedness in the Creator. It seems better characterized as a regression into chaos. And this regression is clear in passages that follow the one we read. The woman who was described in chapter 2 verse 18 as a helper and partner will now have to suffer from her husband's domination. So punishment doesn't seem like as good a description as regression to unorderedness. By the way, just to dispel this nonsense of Eve sinning first and husband as dominator of the household, it would appear to be the case that since dominance is a symptom of the chaotic, then one could say every step a husband takes toward dominance in a covenant relationship is actually a step toward the chaotic. You may have heard it said that I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh and you forgave the guilt of my sin. But I tell you, well, that's a direct quote from Psalm 32 and it seems pretty straightforward. So let's move on to the next one. You may have heard it said that Adam's sin is overcomable. But I tell you that Paul seems to think otherwise. Paul seems to think that Jesus not only counteracted the action of Adam, but somehow did so in a way that it was even more effective than the original transgression. And Paul uses a lot of language like free gift and righteousness. One does not make oneself righteous by any act of their own, including, by the way, confession. They have already been made righteous. You may have heard it said that Jesus' divinity is the only reason he was able to overcome the devil's temptation in the desert. But I tell you, Jesus was fully human. In fact, the whole point of the story of Jesus' temptation is precisely not to make Jesus into a heroic person who was able to resist the temptation of Satan. Read as, I can't, but at least Jesus can. Actually, each temptation is one that Israel faced in the Exodus. Where Israel was scared of starvation and demanded manna, Jesus refuses to turn the stones into bread. Each time bodily harm threatened Israel, they lost confidence in God. 
Jesus refuses to test God in a leap from the temple. Israel worshipped a golden calf. Jesus refuses to worship Satan. And all of this comes after a 40-day fast. You know, 40, as in the amount of years Israel roamed in the desert. This isn't Jesus shoving it in Israel's face. Anything you can't do, I can do better. This is the Creator doing what the Creator does. The thing you are sick of me mentioning. Where Israel drifted into chaos, Jesus reestablishes order. In fact, that's what each of the passages this week is doing. The passage in Matthew is reordering the Exodus journey. The passage in Romans is reordering the passage in Genesis. And the passage in Psalms is just generally happy about that entire process. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, well, the difference between chaos and order and good and bad is just semantic, isn't it? Yes. Either way, certain behavior is healthier than other behavior. But also, of course it matters how we talk about it. And the way the church tends to talk about it seems to be pretty unhealthy. I've often heard this process described as something like a vertical plane. Think of the neutral point of this plane being the horizon. Good is up in the sky and bad is down in the ground. AKA, Jesus is up in the sky and you're all burning in hell. The problem is, in an economy of shame, the horizon keeps moving upward. The top of the line is never achievable. The best one could hope for is neutral, but something will come along that makes you realize you are below neutral again. Perhaps a better image is a fixed point with a spinning circle around it. Of course, a step off the fixed line leaves you spinning, but no matter where you are, just one step places you back on the fixed center. And of course, semantics matter when we imagine this process because we live into the names we are given. Now, before I continue, I just want to give a little disclaimer, especially for this whole series, actually. I'm not a mental health professional, and I have a great deal of respect for mental health professionals. I say this to say, I'm trying to speak theologically. While I think this deconstruction of shame could have an impact on the kind of structures and communities we develop, and could give you some nice ideas to ponder and wrestle with. It is quite possible that this conversation will be triggering for many. In fact, I'm basically talking about it because it's triggering for me. I intend for this conversation to be relegated to the existential realm. But it may have a deeply practical impact for you. If that's the case, please find someone to talk to about it. Anyway. We live into the names we are given. Here's a relatively benign example. A funny thing can happen when you become a parent. You start to notice that your child is exactly like you. Well, my oldest daughter just started kindergarten this year. She's doing a great job, but of course, when we have conferences, there are areas for improvement. And the whole time these areas are listed, I have to fight like crazy to avoid being totally defensive. Not for my daughter, for myself. These things that she could work on 
are the exact same things I needed to work on. But now that I'm getting to relive them at a more mature stage of life, I'm realizing how much it impacted my journey. My attention span wasn't awesome, which was called at the time bad behavior. So by third or fourth grade, I'd become convinced that I couldn't excel in school because I just wasn't made for that particular environment. I just settled into my role as a disruptor and lived into it which caused me to miss a lot of learning that I really think I could have gotten. This continued throughout undergrad. Then I took a break for nine years. And then I started my master's. By this point, the shame of thinking I couldn't hack it led me to have unhealthy rhythms trying to get a 4.0. That was until during a conversation about shame. A professor told me I basically had to get less than an A in a class to remove the myth of perfection. They were right. The process of confession and repentance is not about righteousness. It's not about moving from the bottom of the plane up to the top. It very well could be about bringing our chaotic lives back into order. But it is not about making bad into good. According to the passage in Romans, if there was an issue with righteousness, it has been dealt with. And so as we consider the names that we live into, we must start a series on confession and repentance with the names we are given by the Creator. We are called offspring. We are called good. We are called Beloved. Sometimes I get caught in the trap of not saying something because I think everyone has already heard it. But I should say this just in case. We must start this series seeing a difference between shame and guilt. Guilt deals with actions. Shame deals with being. It is sort of, I did wrong versus I am wrong. Brene Brown puts it like this, quote, I believe that guilt is adaptive and helpful. It's holding something we've done or failed to do up against our values and feeling psychological discomfort. I define shame as the intently painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Let me try and put that in my own terms. Guilt sounds like this. Hey, I don't think that's a very good idea. You know what? You're probably right. I won't do it. Or, that probably wasn't a very good idea. You're probably right. I won't do that again. And shame sounds like this. That probably wasn't a good idea. I know. I don't know what's wrong with me. I always make the wrong decision. I just can't help it. Which version do you think the young girl was thinking as I was playing my sad song at the youth gathering? Here's a hint. I won't do that again. Doesn't usually make you sob uncontrollably. This year, I confess and repent of my participation in systems like that. Instead of being paralyzed by the shame that I ever did it in the first place, I'll just make this podcast instead. 
We could certainly look at the readings this week through either lens. I hope I can set the tone for this series by encouraging you to choose the one that says, there are ways in which some of our actions have promoted chaos. We choose to step off the spinning circle back onto the fixed point of order. We are beloved. We are offspring. We are good. I've occasionally sampled the fruit. It didn't turn out so well. So I won't do that again. You know, I wrestled a lot with this reflection. I thought you have to put more in there than just don't have shame. But honestly, that comes from some amount of shame I have about making you all think I'm smart. The reality is, step one of entering into a season of confession, repentance, and preparation is to understand the temptations that lie ahead. And one of the main ones will be for you to misunderstand who you are. In many ways, how we approach this process, whether through guilt or through shame, matters much more than any details that will emerge along the way about our behavior. Because the ironic thing about shame is, you are far less likely to take any practical action on something you feel shame over than you are on something you feel guilt about. Shame spirals. And we've just become accustomed to it. It's sort of like people who say, I don't like that church because they don't dig into the word enough. Most of the time they just actually mean they didn't feel bad enough about themselves after service, so it couldn't possibly have been meaningful. Many of, many of us have shame Stockholm Syndrome, and this year we're giving that up for Lent. It's not that we're avoiding the process of becoming more kingdom-oriented. On the contrary, we're actually doing something about it. In each of these episodes, I will offer a prayer to end the reflection. This week's prayer is sort of an imaginative prayer, my favorite kind. I'll lead us through it. As we begin, close your eyes and imagine yourself deep in a forest, a place dense with trees. Take a moment to orient yourself to this place. What do you see? What do you hear? What do you smell? What do you feel? Breathe deeply. Sitting directly in front of you is a small tree that extends up as far as you can see. And as you look, 
you notice that the inside appears to be hollow. Upon further examination, the inside of the tree seems to be like one of those old bank tubes that can transport a capsule, but there isn't currently a capsule in it. As you become still in this moment, you begin to pray. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. Now, perhaps as you pray this prayer, a capsule quickly drops into the tube. You're unable to remove the capsule, but you can read on it an offensive way or an action that has become chaotic. But as you finish reading the message, the capsule is immediately sucked back up into the tube. This is not your message to own. The message has been delivered. It is not the thing to dwell on. As soon as the capsule disappears, you hear capsules dropping in trees all around you. You soon realize these are opportunities for reconciliation, for order. These you can take with you. Take a moment to examine the different options. Spend a moment in this space. It is not the offense that matters now. It is the joy for the opportunity of reconciliation. You are beloved. You belong to the divine family. You are good.
That does it for this week's episode. I'd love if you would join us online. We are at postmodernliturgy.com. We are at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. Finally, I would love it if you would consider supporting our work. You can do that for free by sharing and rating and reviewing this podcast or financially at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy. If you visit our Patreon site, you can see several great benefits for our supporters. Thanks again for joining me. And enjoy the tension. <laughs>